This is Disaster Tales. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather, and I have with me today Dr. Richard Olberger, who's a somatic and performance psychologist and host of the Richard Listens Show. So, hi, Richard. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. Real, really glad that you could do it. Uh, tell us you what it is. Kate? Kate is fine. Anything starts with a K. <laughs> nothing that starts with a B. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> so, what you tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist here in California, um, but I spent uh, five years of my training working with LA County as both a disaster and crisis responder, and that included um, suicidal and homicidal people that also involved responding to natural disasters or uh, incidents where children are displaced from their home, um, uh, crisis in places of business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a variety of situations, including accompanying uh, SWAT teams to to a response and things like that. So that's some serious yeah. work there. It was very serious, and um, you know it's pretty interesting sometimes how you find yourselves as a professional in these environments. But we know, like coming into training in social work and psychology, a lot of the the positions that are available when you come out of school are in uh, crisis or community response. And I happen to find a job in forensic psychology. Wow. And for those of your listeners that, you know, think that's like a CSI, I was, you know, kind of terrified by it. I think I was <laughs> doing everything I could to run away from it. But um, sometimes in life, uh, I made a great connection with the supervisor and uh, the gentleman who ran the program was we, we sat down twice and he was really engaging and he really wanted to take a mentor role in my career and said, you know, I'm willing to show you the rest. I'm willing to teach you uh, about a lot of this. And I think you'll learn tremendous things about the human spirit and compassion. And it was an opportunity to grow as I was newly licensed and supervising all things that were totally uncomfortable for me. Um, But, you know, you get to look at why people were arrested, why they're, you know, declared not guilty by reason of insanity, which was always something from the movies uh, for me. (laughs) It doesn't sound like something that in real life is very common, actually. Yeah, you, you hear it on a movie and you're like, oh, is that person faking? And, and are they really insane? And and you get to see the select portion of people and that, that interesting, um, you know, dilemma between society letting someone re-enter once they've, you know, violated uh, one of the sacred laws and, and how they're treated and... Um, and the difference between an individual who's been prone to violence, uh, you learn a lot about violence, or, or committed one act of violence maybe when they were, um, after they'd experienced several traumas as a child or grown up in war, events like that. And and then the different person that you get when they are off drugs in a safe environment and at the time uh, under medication and different forms of treatment. So, uh, you know, say what you want from whatever side of the angle you are on about psychotropic medication. I saw people that uh, 
if you didn't read a report and know their history, uh, you'd be very comfortable having them, you know, around and over your house for dinner. And, and that struggle for them to re-enter society. Um, so uh, that that position in working in that role also allows you, if, if somebody is unsafe, to send them back to the safe kind, finds the state hospital. Apparently, that ability to hospitalize someone and place them in an ambulance is a real skill that mm-hmm. I was not aware of. Uh, so L.A. County looked at my description as a psychologist who could hospitalize people and said, we need somebody who, when people are not feeling safe or contained, uh, can help them get that <laughs> treatment if needed. Because right. we'd rather someone, you know, be in a safe environment. Uh, you know, again, say what you want about what happens once you're inside a psychiatric institute or whether or not that's the end goal of healing and treatment. Um it certainly is, is a lot better than the alternative, some harming themselves or, or having uh, an act of violence in a, in a family or community. So um, it, it opened my eyes to all these opportunities of working with the fire department, does trainings in uh, community emergency. They call it CERT here. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's nationwide. CERT training, working with the fire department. How would you help if there was an earthquake? Mm-hmm. Um, and the county thankfully paid for a lot of training uh, to be prepared in all types of uh, scenarios. Right. Um, so, sir, just yeah. for just for our folks, uh, is a community Thanks. emergency response team correct? That is correct. Okay. So that's more of a civil role, mm-hmm. not necessarily a paid role, where you would respond to an emergency center if uh, to help people and victims. I mean, you can help with physical things, right? Great bruises and scrapes and some minor. Uh, first aid, but I think uh, in my capacity, it's also the concept of psychological first aid and debriefing. Have you ever worked with disaster survivors specifically at a disaster recovery center? Uh, not at a disaster recovery center, but it was part of the training. You know, it partnered with um, uh, the Red Cross out here mm-hmm. that you had. We were trained to be ready for that kind of a situation and which one you would report to and. Uh, it was part of a, I don't know if it was a county responsibility, but uh, it was strongly recommended um, okay. that you'd well, be available. Next time I'm in California, definitely come over to where I am and we'll, we'll show you everything that goes on there. Are you, are you uh, touring different centers uh, no. or only as crisis come up? No, actually, um, I should probably tell you a little bit of my background if I have forgotten. Um, I work for FEMA. And so I help people, I go out to disasters and help the people that have been, that have survived to get their assistance and refer them to other assistance that's available in the area. And I also have a degree in emergency management and I worked with the Red Cross for 20 years. So I'm kind of live disaster stuff, hence the podcast. Okay. (laughs) So. Okay. (laughs) Very good. I'll be happy to join you. And we've certainly had our share with the, uh, the fires and. I've I've been out there three times in the last four years, so yeah, yeah it's it's not good. Um, there's a lot of people now that are homeless because when their houses burned, there was no other housing available for them to move into, and so now you have in California not just a high homeless population, you also have a high disaster survivor homeless population that were housed and were unhoused by the disaster. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I know, uh, you know, I know, I'm sure we'll get to it uh, in your in your follow-up questions, but my work with the homeless, the shelters, even though there's so many, 
per capita. Probably California or Los Angeles has so many. Um, they fill up really quick. and um, I don't know that they always have the same amount of resources for a family. Uh, it gets more and more complicated to find those resources. Yeah, I do. I do. I do see that when I go to California, I see more homeless on the streets than I do anywhere else in the country. And that I haven't been to all the other states, but it just seems to me that probably partially because of the climate and partially because of the tolerance for it, that um, you see a lot of folks out on the street. Yeah. Yeah. It's all around us. And um, it's, it's very hard, you know, having worked in the County, the degree of compassion, fatigue and, and helplessness, even when you mentioned the fires, just, uh, and I know this weekend my, my gym had a, you know, fundraiser for Australia and there's just this kind of, you know, paralyzing mm -hmm. fear about, you know, what, what can we do and how can we help? Yeah, I was, I watch a lot of like woodworking videos and things like that. And there was a gentleman that does them and they're very good. His name is Peter Brown. And he was in Santa Rosa and he recorded one day just his feelings about being in Santa Rosa with it burning down and his house not burning. And he was upset for his neighbors and he was upset to see people out taking pictures and up to the point where it would be blocking the road and a lot of other issues that were, I mean, perfectly understandable issues and feelings for him. But uh, it was pretty demonstrative of, of what happens when people are ne near a disaster, but not actually in it. You feel very helpless and you feel very upset. Yes. Well. And I know that's something you want to talk about is uh, the vicarious traumatization um, mm -hmm. because you know, part of my training um, and the county led me to something called uh, somatic experiencing mm -hmm. training, which is um, a whole modality of learning how to understand um, the complicated term is psychoneurobiology. But the, the layman's term is like, you know, w what happens in your body when something really scary happens uh, and how that pays, plays off the, the fight or flight response. And so why people will say, you know, I don't know what happened. I just froze or some of these experiences you're mentioning of why it creates anger in you when you can't mm -hmm. do anything um, or experiences people have. They got in a car accident and they're, they, they, you know, are kind of they're alert. But an hour later, they're like, I don't know where everyone went and nobody was supporting me. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, this experience of not being in control. And so the, the, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, where there's this kind of like feeling of you can't protect yourself and you don't know how to protect others and, and you don't even know which way to start moving to do it right, right. because if, if, we, if we had a plan if we knew maybe ways to do it then we would have some sense of um, direction uh, and move from that state of freeze which can be really paralyzing for people yeah and um, that helplessness feeling comes in a lot with people who are like I said beside the disaster in the area but not affected or family members who aren't affected but but you know they're worried about their family that was affected or and like we were talking about the workers but so what kind of responses do you have if you are ex say that you're in a house tornado tears off the roof and the wall falls walls all fall in and you survive that what kind of what kind of responses could you expect to that from somebody who went through that? Um, you know, the term is common as, as survivor's guilt. 
um, you know, the, the, you know, in some ways, why, why was I the one to survive? There's a burden, an emotional burden of, um, seeing other people suffer, um, and having to live with the knowledge that you were the only survivor. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's, um, you know, and, and being trained in, in something called EMDR and somatic experience, you know, part of it is realizing, like, getting to the deeper feelings behind it. Cause it sounds like there's a lot of sadness there and grief mm-hmm. mixed with this, you know, everyone sees you and says, well, you're so lucky. It's amazing. You survived. You're mm-hmm. so lucky. Right. That's it. And you get seen with this, you should feel relief. You should feel gratitude. Uh, you should be eternally, you're the one who survived. And I think there's, to people who survived, there's a, a loyalty to those uh, who they loved. Um, there's a tremendous sadness, or, or you know, a lot of your brain trying to figure out, you know, if you could have done something or changed something. Um, so it's it's it can be a lot of guilt, and it can be you know anger that the event happened at all. I also see people that they have depression when they lose their loved ones like that, and it makes them want to join them. Yes, tremendously. I mean, the, the feeling like then you had this loss, you know, and in the connection, you know, the, 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 yeah, there's a desire, there's some feeling of a, a, you know, depending on your belief around suicide, but a spiritual desire to be connected with the dead uh, mm. and your loved one. And it's just painful to live without those, um, and especially if you've witnessed the event. I mean, it's just tremendously so... Um, and it feels almost like um, a noble thing, right? To to feel to feel connected, and, and you know, it does. And and a lot of times I'll hear people say, you know, well, this happened this way for a reason, and and I think that's how they try and gain direction out of what happens to them. But um, so when you have a traumatic event happen, it does things to your body as well as your mind. What what could you expect if you were going through that? Well, I think, like we talked about, depending what happened to you at the time, like, uh, first of all, you, you know, you, you, you may really get into a state of such, maybe in such a state of either freeze, fight or flight, depending on how you were responding uh, to the event. But some people to survive a, a disaster, that uh, they may actually, you know, kind of emotionally shut down. Uh, and so your body may stay in that state. So it's kind of like, you know, if you examine the the gas gauge from full to empty, people can get stuck on fully on the right side, which is like super anxious, um, hypervigilance expecting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like we know, you know, you hear a loud, a car backfire and you, you assume it's a, a gun, gunshot or, or, uh, you know, perhaps a sign of a, you know, breaking branch. So these things trigger the same feeling in your body because your body wants to, protect you from it ever happening again it wants to learn and, and it remembers um so that that hyper vigilant response is one you know way in which we can become contingent and then on the other spe- side of the spectrum is this like we mentioned this shutdown of like if i just keep my head like the crane under the sand then maybe the you know the attacker or um you know the perpetrator won't see me even if the perpetrator is the weather. That's right. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's why depression, as much as there's times to feel depressed, there's time to feel all, all the range of 
moods. It's not, a, it's a, you know, in response to a loss. But if we get stuck, right, staying in, indoors and not interacting with people, eventually it starts to become harmful to us in other ways because we're not creating new experiences or, or engaging relationships that could be supportive or helpful. What I see a lot is people will come in and talk to me because what I, my job is to help them get their assistance, which means I have to help them locate all of the documents that they need and fill out all the paperwork. And, and in the meantime, I hear all the stories because they all, which is fine. That's, I consider it part of my job. And, but what I see a lot of times is people that are like, they're holding a lid on a boiling pot trying to stay calm long enough to function so that they can go off later by themselves and start feeling all this craziness that they have in them. And, and I mean, like, you know, all those different feelings. Yeah, I mean, I think people want to manage and they, they want to cope, like the distance in coping with stress or, or you know, versus processing. Uh, that's the one thing I uncovered the most in doing this crisis work is that people are, you know, the amount of, traumas or stresses that some people have been through in their lives and and then you're catching them uh at a point where um or after a major disaster like you said um and so if they don't know what they're processing if they're not really fully in touch with their emotions then usually you know that there's triggers that are bringing up some of the mm -hmm. surface things like you meant like someone sitting with you and they're told they're not going to get housing, and, and the, the 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 amount of anger that comes up uh, is is deeper. It's much deeper, and you know, it's disproportionate sometimes. That's right. Yes. That's that's the appropriate term, disproportionate, right? Because there's so much that hasn't been that people don't see, and they don't know how to show people. And that's one of the mm -hmm. hardest things with any kind of grief and, and and loss is that the world is looking at you and just sees a person, and however else people project onto you, and you're you know your cars, your car, your looks, your clothes, and they, they mm -hmm. think, you know, like you said, you should be so lucky and you survived, um, but they don't see the pain you're holding. And so I think that feeling of invalidation can be very real for people. So, you know, I hope there's having um, groups, having support systems like the Red Cross agencies that are there not only to deal with physically finding you housing and obviously taking care of your basic needs in the pyramid, but making sure that you feel a part of, of a group or that other people are there to validate what you're going through and, and just allow. We do, we do find a lot in places that's it, it like in, um, I was in white sulfur, West Virginia when they had a huge flood and they started an organization because white sulfur strong. And you see that a lot during the El Paso shooting last year, they had an organization, El Paso Strong, and it was, it was a very loose, you know, kind of an organization. But the the whole idea was the motto: "We're strong, and and we'll come back from this." Yes, and and you know, obviously, being from from New York and having been back home four days after nine eleven, and coming from a small bedroom community where you know everyone gets on a train and goes to the stock market every day, and it's um, almost, and you know, you just idyllic in that way and and to see the way people were were shattered um 
uh, sorry, you see, conversations about trauma bring up your own personal and collective traumas. Of and, course they do. Uh, <laughs> of course but, they do. But inevitably, yeah, this, the, the organizations and feeling like I'm fighting, I'm resilient, mm-hmm. kind of resets that dial on the nervous system that I was talking about from one extreme to the other towards a state of more what we call parasympathetic balance. You know, your body's kind of being retrained. Yeah, equilibrium. Yeah, equilibrium, exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kate. So are you from upstate New York? Uh, No, I'm I'm born in the city, but raised in uh, Rockville Center, which is a suburb. Oh, okay, because I grew up in uh, Tioga County up near Binghamton. Oh, Binghamton. Yeah, up at Cornell up there, too. They were about equally distant from where I lived. Oh, boy. My sister went to school there, and I love upstate New York. Cornell or? She went to Binghamton. Cornell, yeah, and I no, uh-huh. I, I I wished I went to Binghamton, and it's one of my bigger regrets. Uh, it's so. it's beautiful. I'm gonna try and retire up there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, good. Another Yankee. It's good to know. My sister <laughs> is up there too. She's up there uh, in Cayuga County by the Finger Lakes, by Lake Cayuga. Well, at least you can do and, your podcast uh, from anywhere. That's exactly right. <laughs> and we just we did our last one from there. Oh wow. Um, that's good. Well, and nine eleven was, it was an event that. I think it literally affected everyone in the country one way or another because there was people that were far removed from the area and and they were it seemed like when when Kennedy was shot everybody was upset and everybody was upset it it felt the same and obviously you know like I was not uh you know I was born at the end of the the Vietnam era so you know everybody has this like cultural experience uh from from where they were raised or or what their own upbringing is but you know part of what my master's thesis on ptsd was about was looking at like uh for instance i spent my junior year and i lived some in in, uh, israel and i was looking at well why you know there's certain qualities about the country and about the people that seem like they handle stress better i mean it Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely seems like a stress culture. There's certain ways in which it's a little bit more aggressive and agitated culture, uh, having since its onset in 1948, six wars, I think. Um, and that was like, yeah, that was like as of 10 years ago. So uh, if you include some of these other wars, maybe more. Um, but there's certain things about certain countries um, and how they handle um, what we would call, you know, shell shock or, or, or PTSD, uh, which are different. And some of it is the collective joining and embracing, uh, immediately of those troops when they come home and, and inclusion right back into, so that acceptance and feeling like you're loved and, and purposeful and that you were protecting your tribe. Uh, you know, I think some of that, uh, helps to make you feel like whatever you went through, uh, had a purpose. Um, whereas, experiences like some of the things you're saying where you were the only one who survived you there's no one to share that with and um it's hard to make sense of it psychologically or emotionally yeah in in israel where they settled and they're in a in a place where there's constant war basically in the area and it's also peopled by um a lot of was created for a lot of people that had been through the trauma of of the the Second World War Nazi concentration camps. I would think that would set an entirely different tone for how the community really reacts to things than it would here in the United States where we haven't had a war here since 1865. 
Right. I mean, I think that the whole context, I mean, at least from the uh, Israeli perspective of forming a country based on survival and having your, you know, people, even the people who are displaced, I mean, literally some of them moving uh, without a spouse and grieving a spouse, um, the fact that they moved with the sense of purpose, and of course there's other things that, that go into that, spiritual beliefs and um you know, and, and essentially, right, this whole ideology, ideological belief that you're rebuilding a culture. But the the remarrying or recreating communities, the immediate focus on that is part of what I found in the research. Um, and we did see some of that similarly here in, in the U.S. post-World War II. I mean, definitely World War II vets are treated uh, very different than uh that's from vietnam or at least i can you can sense their their emotional experience of... i i can tell you exactly that is exactly true because i was there when they were coming home and um my dad was in korea but a lot of the other parents that i of of the kids i grew up with were in the second world war and you know second world war came home those veterans came home to parades and ticker tapes and you know welcome home parties and sometimes even overwhelmingly happy events when they were still trying to deal with the war war problems. But the Vietnam veterans came home to all the protest and the insults and literally being spit on sometimes because they were being called baby killers and because of the way that the news and the protest or movement at the time was framing the framing the narrative. And then the the rock veterans that i'm seeing coming home are pretty much coming home under the radar they're not getting either treatment is what what kind of uh, cuz i know a lot of vietnam vets what kind of situation changes i don't know how to ask, ask the question you can frame the answer <laughs> um are you asking more about what what shifted the way in which people treat the veterans or um, more like the what's happening with the veterans coming home okay i mean to I, the different situations well i can just tell you i mean even now seeing people vietnam vets that are now in assisted livings and older i mean there's still this feeling of like uh, they have to pull me off into a corner and, and, and talk to me where nobody can listen and say, uh, you know, people called us, like you said, baby kill. People called me this. People called me that. And, and this this dissonance between, on the one hand, like, you know, doing what you're trained to do and serving your country and the highly technical aspects of being a soldier who has to learn their enemy and learn to survive in this uh, challenging environment and, and style of warfare uh, versus, um, you know, the public perception of right. what what morals and, and ethics are uh, when you're outside of a, a war and and about harming innocents and children and um, and just all the political feelings about why we were there to begin with and and what we were doing fighting sending our own people to fight someone else's war I think that's a lot of the ambivalence that people go through um, yeah. I know that coming from New York to Texas, I was a senior in high school when I moved here. I was not happy about it. But I grew up, because I graduated in 75, so we were heavily into the anti-war movement when I was a teenager. 
And when I moved to Texas, I was going to a school where they had a junior ROTC program that was grooming my classmates to go to Vietnam. And so when, when I came here, it was, I was, I don't know what, I don't even know what I was. I was shocked and confused and thinking, what is, why are you thinking that way? Within your own country, within mm -hmm. a couple different states. Um, That's right. Wow. Did you get in a lot of conflicts or did you keep it to yourself? <laughs> I drank a lot. <laughs> that's, that's, I drank that's a, a lot. That's a common coping response. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, let's see. So and if I, you have yeah. someone that's experiencing trauma, I'm sorry, did you have something else well, you wanted to Well, I just want to add because, I mean, I have a vivid memory. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, God rest her soul. Um you know, I, I can't remember the, the last name of the, the girl, but in my program while I lived in Israel, being there, um, hanging out with uh, a young lady, and I took like a, a short brief nap and waking up and there was a group of people gathered outside. And I guess uh, there had been, you know, a, a bombing in Israel earlier. And I was like, it was the most visceral experience of how quickly in your close surround, something can go from one way to another. Um, you know, and so that was, you know, one form of, of trauma of, of someone seeing someone lose their sister in, in an act of senseless violence. But the point I was yeah. wanting to relate to you on, uh, Kathleen was that when they asked her, they came with a camera and asked this young lady how she felt about, you know, two different government, there were two different government parties and, mm -hmm. and the election in 1996 was between the incumbent, uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who's uh, and at the time a gentleman named Shimon Perez, who I think won a, mm -hmm. a Nobel Prize or a Peace Prize. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And the country was literally like it was 50 50, as close to that you can get a 50 50. In fact, Shimon Perez was ahead until they counted the military votes, like the absentee mm -hmm. military soldier vote. And to me, I remember being like so like amazed that the whole country mm -hmm. could be that split, you know, and if we look at the country as a metaphor for our mind and our individual selves, um, that, that people could be so torn as to not knowing what was right. And the real central tenet at the time was, do you react peacefully to your neighbor and to these things of violence and, and not add to that belief system? Uh, or do you respond with security and strength and fighting back? And I remember they asked this young lady's sister who lost her sister and she right next to me said, I absolutely believe in the peace process. And she just lost That's her good. sister. And, and yeah, it was, it was really, uh, it was beautiful and humbling. And I just occurred to me how hard that must be to take that perspective uh, when you're feeling, you know, that much grief. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, well, two things come out of that come to me when you talk about that. One is what's going on in this country right now, where, it seems like there's a fresh hell every morning when I wake up <laughs> and the country is, it seems to be very divided. And, but the other thing is having people come to somebody who's been through a trauma like that and put a microphone in their face and say, how does that make you feel? Right. I mean, I think some of it is, uh, the culture. Yeah, I was pretty amazed. I don't know if they, they were like interviewing her because she was the sister or they were just interviewing students 
on where they stood, mm-hmm. and I knew what she had been through uh, very recently. Uh, so I was kind of like, you know, it, 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 the bigger point I think I want to make is when you have these open discussions, when you can have uh, open, honest, safe dialogue about your pain, you begin to look at things very differently. And so some of what, when you mentioned, you know, our country, I feel like it's like this, at least I'm in California and from New York, it really makes you aware of what people in other parts of the country have, have gone through and, um, mm-hmm. or are going through. And, and unfortunately, we're only getting the snapshot of the result of where they've arrived at uh, in their belief systems. And, uh, you know, so being able to connect, uh, you know, I'm assuming this is, Similarly to what was going on in our country around the Civil War, there's just a complete disconnection and lack of understanding and lack of uh, ability to communicate ideas about what's what's right and representative of, of beliefs. Um, well, that's it. That's interesting what you said about it being the snapshot, the end result. Um, that's something I've never thought of before. But when you have a conflict like we're having right now. The, it's not just that people jumped on one bang, bandwagon or another. There actually was a process to them coming to the point where they had this belief system versus that belief system. Yes. I mean, that's part of, you know, conflict resolution. And, um, I, you know, a lot of studies, at least because, you know, I'm, I have of Jewish heritage. You know, a lot of people have taken a look at the Holocaust and things like mm-hmm. that. So certainly... You know, I know a lot of people are just growing up, you're just focused on, well, how could someone like Hitler come to be? And he's just pure evil. And it must have been just this one person who led this evil experience. Um, But when when you start to get a little experience on history and looking at the people, you know, must have really been suffering and they must have really been looking for an answer. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it does give you a greater empathy about what maybe going on and you mentioned, you know, West Virginia and, you know, different parts of our country where, you know, maybe jobs are down and people are, are, are fearful and scared um, and not knowing mm-hmm. how to adjust uh, to the times that we're in. Um, and then when, you know, somebody comes forth and gives them a voice uh, for good or bad, lead, you know, leaders can be good, bad, uh, depending on. Right. But it can give can can be very powerful in you know, if you scapegoat or if you say, well, that that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can really help us psychologically feel like, wow, well, I've got to focus now. Uh, and hate can be very very easy uh, if if you hate or if you just uh, feel the other person is is the the cause of your suffering. In a way, it gives you a relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, getting people to move past that and get deeper. Uh, into that and and to feel like they have a way forward um, is part of it but but part of some of the treatments which now I'm glad are being made available to public agencies such as EMDR for clinicians Mm -hmm. all over the country is to allow people to get into their pain they have a right to their pain and if you've been through a loss um, no matter where you're from whether you be uh, you know from, from any state, any country, any nationality, when you've been through things, um, there needs to be a place to process your pain because if not, and it starts to get added on to multiple experiences, it starts to like kind of crystallize into a, a belief system. And that's where it can be kind of become harmful because mm-hmm. um, it shapes how you, how you interact with the world. And, um, 
what we're trying to create for ourselves and and how we heal whether you're healing you know healing and destroying um it can be really you know it, it can be a fine line so helping people even you know understand that they're on a healing path to begin a healing path by speaking to a uh, a mental health professional or, or getting support at church, any place, you know, the minute I think you have one person you can feel connected to and get out of your own uh, isolation, um, you move towards a place of uh, cre- creating some sort of change. Um, well, and, and so when you find that person, let's, I kind of want to, I know we've wandered a little bit, but it's okay, fine because sure, it's really interesting. <laughs> but um, what, so for me and for my coworkers, we sometimes are that person that they come to and start to like put together. I personally think that in order for something like that to settle in your brain and not just keep spinning around and around, you have to tell the story a certain number of times. I don't know what it is, but a certain number. And a lot of people do that with journaling, but a lot of people also do that by just talking about it, telling the story. And that's what we hear is a lot of these stories. And sometimes those stories are kind of rough. I know one lady I talked to a couple of years ago out in California, she had gotten, it was during the, during the campfire when um, paradise burned. And she had been in Los Angeles and she had called her father and her father was stuck in a, in a uh, trailer park and couldn't get out. And so she talked to him until she couldn't talk to him anymore. And what she, the last thing she said about the situation was that at least she got to tell him goodbye. And when you hear a story like that, that can affect you. And that's all I do all day is listen to stories like that. Mm -hmm. So what, and that I believe is what you were talking about is vicarious trauma. That kind of a, yeah, that kind of like you take on or you can't let go of the trauma that they've conveyed to you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's differences uh, between, you know, maybe you or I or every single clinician on some level. But on some level, people who are out to, to help people who have suffered, uh, whether you be, um, you know, in the church and disaster response or mental health um, or, or uh, frontline emergency room, you know, you are taking in the whole experience. You, mm-hmm. you, are, you are absorbing the family members and how they're reacting to the, the ill person. And like you said, you're taking on um, the whole vividness of that description and what it must have been like and how painful that must be at that moment. I mean, how few mm-hmm. people get to hear that exact moment. Um, so and I was really happy, you know, that like somebody kept hitting me over the head with, with my own somatic experience, you know, while I was like running around the county all hours of the night, one mm-hmm. person kept calling me and saying, I think you should check out this training. And, and as a clinician, my default was I'm too busy. You know, my work is mm-hmm. too important. Uh, I've got a family, you know, who, you know, it's another thing because I treated learning myself as just more intellectual information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the disconnection from mind body existed within me. So now I realize that 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 happens in my clients, too. And so in order to help my clients with it, I have to become better. Uh, suited at it and I think the minute I opened myself up to this uh, this training I realized how much I was suffering Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think you know it's supposed to be part of our training and I'm sure it is for you guys as well certain amount of debriefing or therapy of your own 
Um, so not really, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I know in the county, for all its, for all intents and purposes, we were supposed to debrief after our crisis calls. Mm-hmm. But going into somebody's home and not knowing whether or not somebody's going to act violently, and we we have the ability to bring law law enforcement on, but sometimes you know just bizarre situations that could quickly become violent. And having to sit on that fence of determining is this safe or not safe, mm-hmm. and getting pieces of information that aren't always an emotional that tell you, oh no, this is not safe for somebody, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. and I and I need to mobilize. Um, that's a lot to carry. So our little county Prius, I always joke, that was like the the therapy chamber, you know, like driving <laughs> to and from calls because that was the only place where we could really talk about, did you see this? And did you, were you noticing this? And what were you feeling? Mm-hmm. And at my time, my partner was, was pregnant too, you know? So, so what were you, were you feeling fear? Were you feeling like you should protect your child? What, like, so yeah. those conversations I felt kept me human and connected because once we got back to the office, it was more of an administrative debriefing. And so I definitely noticed, uh, at times when I, you know, the more calls you go on, the intensity of certain types of calls, um, you know, tendency to call out sick or just feel like you need a mental health day because it's so intense. So the, the training of somatic experience teaches you, and even some parts of EMDR, first of all, what can you do for yourself outside a session, right? Mm -hmm. How, how can you balance yourself? I mean, uh, if we're so out there in the field, even if you're out there responding to a Katrina or something like that, if you need a few moments, uh, if you, if you can grab a coworker and you need to, you know, have a coffee or a meal and just check in with one another, um, obviously it's more intense when you're a FEMA and you're, you're in a site. Um, then what can you do for yourself when sitting in the chair? I try and do a lot of things for myself when I'm sitting, talking to somebody, mm-hmm. if I need a moment after I've heard what you just heard from that young lady, um, I try to really practice. My tendency is to go fast. My tendency is to rush. My handwriting is still like it's in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't hire me for that. But, you know, it, the ability to slow down with the breath, it, to mm-hmm. take a look. I'll start to look at my, my hands and arms. Am I clenching? Am my feet like uh, braced? And this right. is how an internal like body scan type process. Um some of it is modeling the, the kind of rhythmic breathing we'd like to see in our clients because injecting a parasympathetic moment of the relaxation response when they're processing their trauma helps them to go, okay, I was like, what they got to say goodbye. That means a lot to them. Yeah. Like to, and, and so for me to feel like, and to allow in for a moment of joy and, and happiness and, and, and love or whatever, you know, she feels for her father. That's, that's what she's always going to hold on to. That. Um, yeah. And yet you're holding all the other stuff. So it's like the ability to kind of just pump the brakes for just a minute because we're aware of all the other stuff too. But if, if we allow it to flood us, um, which is part of the empathy, I think. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that it's, you know, to criticize us. I think all of us get to this place. We're just so connected and, and so empathetic that uh, we, we merge. I think that kind of work attracts people that, that are like us, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah, you feel it. You really sponge it, mm-hmm. right? That's the term, right? We sponge it up. And, and you know what? 
if you didn't respond perfectly that one time, if you if you feel yourselves like like you notice when they leave and you're certain degree of uh, you know perspiration or, or, or mental fog like that just may be a sign if you you know I try and like if you can even when you're in a setting like that uh, finding little breaks or if you can take a little walk like maybe there's you can only do so many in a row because by the time you get the fourth or fifth person mm-hmm. if we're more irritable if we're more abrupt that's what they're getting in the homeless shelter that's what they're getting on the disaster site from you and mm-hmm. even the most trained and most skilled people I think fall prey to that of, uh, you know, wanting to help everybody or wanting to move too fast. Yeah. And they get away from their own center that they, they have to really tune into themselves. Um, and if you can't do it, you know, uh, during a given day, certainly I think at at the end of the day, there needs to be some Peter Levine, uh, from somatic experience, you know, often talks about allowing your body to even like, if you notice trembling and shaking, we often think of that, Oh, that's not good. I need to, People think I need to have a drink at the end of the day or I need to take <laughs> mm-hmm. something to stop my body from responding this way. But truthfully, that kind of response is a way of like shaking off stress. It can be a way of kind of, sh- you know, your body showing you you've been holding too much and you need to uh, release it. It's like a paddle ball. If you if you push that paddle ball away too fast, it's going to come right back and hit you again. <laughs> um, so... For as far as my coworkers and I, when we go to a disaster, we go on very short notice, 24 to 48 hours notice. We get arbitrarily sent to a site. Um, then we're dealing with people that have these issues all day, and um, so, and we're away from our families, and we're staying in a hotel, and we most of us go home to the hotel and don't want to talk to anybody for the rest of the day. So. Um, what could I do to help my coworkers learn how to deal with this? Uh, I mean, I think that do, there are some uh, briefer parts of uh, EMDR called ATIP, which is more like you know describing, you know, from the EMDR perspective, if you describe you know your emotion, if you give a number to what you're you're, you're feeling on a given day, uh, you know, and then you know, maybe to, to take a look at, you know, what, you know, even a vision for what you want the, what do you, where do you want to see these people in three months or six months? Like, where are you hoping to lead this? Mm -hmm. So you give your, your, the internal part of yourself that is really doing this to make a difference or influence them or help people a place to have the hope, right? If it exists in your mind, then it can exist in your body. Um, but I think there's something really parasympathetic, uh, to, right. Can you get together? Can you share a meal? I mean, you're, they call the term trauma bonding is really, mm-hmm. you know, I think, right. Uh, that people may want to isolate or disconnect, or like I said, uh, just shut off. Um, so some experience of being together, uh, I think any kind of movement is good. If you could walk, if you could, uh, um, anything that might be sensory. So, uh, you know, wherever you are, I always find like there's a certain amount of like, you know, orienting to your body to like taking in, um, the beauty of a place, even if it's been through, uh, you know, a tremendous amount, like really connecting to the energy of the place that you're in, mm-hmm. uh, and the people, I think that, um, so, and anything allowing for each other to share a little bit, maybe because when you're telling the story, which, what you've held on to, mm-hmm. 
um, you allow your you also allow your nervous system to get supported. So a certain amount of debrief and, and consultation. Um, but maybe for some people to be to be you know just be present and be calm. You know, I think there are individual differences to what their system may need. Mm -hmm. I think I think just learning as a group about what you need when you're in these situations and validating that you also need help. Mm -hmm. It's a very lonely experience and you're and the expectation internally and externally is that you're the one who's coming into with all the answers. Yeah. yeah um, I so I think, you know, the permission, <laughs> the permission to be vulnerable and um, the accountability to one another. Uh, I think, like you said, the feeling like you're both uh, creates this resilience that we're, we're supporting one another so exercises may be, so any kind of way you can ritualize, I think, this process, mm -hmm. that may be highly individual. So, you know, maybe it is for somebody taking a hot bubble bath and taking a walk uh, and having a dinner with a colleague. Maybe for somebody else, they, they may prefer that time, uh, a little bit of time quiet to feel protected and safe. Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever makes you feel like, right, I can secure myself because when you're exposed to that trauma, you feel unsafe yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what leads a lot, that does lead to, you know, burnout and substance abuse is like, oh my God, either I have to keep doing more and more and more to try and stop this or solve this issue in the world, which is impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, although certainly prevention and education about, you know, certain types of violence and uh, things like that um, can certainly help reduce incidents. Um, so, Rituals, um, naming what you're experiencing, uh, and connection for support. I think those are would be the three places I would start. Okay. With. Well, that's yeah, that's good. And so, and a lot of us kind of do that naturally, but it's good to know that there's actually more than just one option. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you find Kathleen that people want to talk about what they've experienced, or they want to like you know? tell jokes and, and, and talk about as, things totally unrelated. As coworkers? Yes. Um, the last the last time I went out, um, I was carpooling with a woman. We had like an hour drive each way. So a lot of times we talked about what we'd heard from our um, clients. A lot of times we talked about how to solve some of the problems that we were, that were coming up over and over again, like the, the short-term, um, immediate emergency housing issues because when somebody's out of their home they uh they can either stay at like a red cross shelter or they end up in the walmart parking lot and if the fema has their fight club style motorhome program or mobile home program where you don't talk about it because they won't be able to get them in for at least a month so in that first 30 days there's a lot of people that don't have any housing options and then there's some of some of my friends that I work with we we do we go out and have l dinner or lunch and then when we're driving home we talk and joke around and I personally do art projects and take them into try to make them group art projects and uh, or some kind of participation thing where it's kind of you know takes a little of the pressure off I know Yes. I would have a yes, meeting every that's... morning and sometimes I'd have them stand up in the superhero position with their legs apart and their arms akimbo and put their head up and then say, you are going to be somebody's superhero today. And it kind of 
relieved the tension and, and made them think that they would be put them more in a helping frame of mind. Mm-hmm. So my that's my personal And they are, experience. and they are. They're solving it. Yeah, they're flying in to save the day and to see themselves as powerful mm-hmm. and to feel, that to know that even the small actions, just by being present, you are affecting change. Mm-hmm. So I like I like what you just highlighted. Yeah, anything you can do to relieve pressure, which is can be, you know, highly individual. I know from riding alongside policemen uh, who, you know, certainly in this part of the country feel a great degree of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's there's also individuals out there who feel fear related to police, but I can tell you that in high crime areas uh, of Los Angeles, uh, riding as a psychologist, riding along with police, that there's a tremendous anxiety and fear and you hear the calls over the radio uh, when an officer is down and seeing how they live with that and yet then seeing the tremendous amount of bonding uh, and connection um, that go on within certain units or partners Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes just telling really just joking around is like a way of just protecting themselves from uh, you know, kind of like the gallows humor, they call it just, just <laughs> keeping right. away from talking about anything fearful. Um, well, and then there's, there's more humor. Cause I also have worked on an ambulance before and, <laughs> and yeah, you get some things that if anybody who was not in the ambulance with you heard what you were saying, they would be shocked, but it's just the way, it's just how you deal with what's in front of you. You know, when you come up to an accident or somebody has a broken hip or a heart attack or something, and, you know, it's it's constant bad news, high stress, that when you're when you're not in the middle of it, there's there's some <laughs> people say some pretty pretty odd things. But I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's how you deal with it. Yeah, you're trying to protect yourself from feeling like, uh oh, I may have to go. Like, what's the worst case scenario, Mm -hmm. right? And I know when I worked, you know, in this crisis response job, I felt like what I think a lot of law enforcement do, which is I went up like in a Chipotle sitting in the back booth, like a, you know, a mobster tracking the door Mm -hmm. and scanning the room for who could possibly going through some sort of mental health crisis. Um, (laughs) I do that that because I live in Texas because we're we're (laughs) an open carry, stand your ground state. So you see, yeah. So it happened, like I said, part of it's amazing training and, and uh, observational skill, and part of it's like, you know, you want to be able to enjoy your burrito. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the ability, I think you said a couple things there. You know, creativity is tremendous. Anything where you're involved with your hands and using your body in particular to, to shape or create something. And art is wonderful because it's interesting to see what, you know, your subconscious has absorbed and held on to, and, and you get to experience it much differently by seeing it out on paper. During Hurricane Katrina, we were in the, the headquarters, and there is, in Baton Rouge, and there was a building, and then there was like a pass-through and to the other building, and in this pass-through, they had a place where people kept their tools, so as you're walking by, what you would be walking by was these boxes that had rabbit wire on them, and so one day I went one night I went out and got a rabbit and some rabbit food and a watering thing, a stuffed rabbit. And so I put it in there so that when you walk by, it looks like you're walking by a rabbit cage. Well, the next day there was another rabbit in it. And then it started to fill up. And then the other cages started to fill up with, one of them was filled up with 
like emergency vehicles and one of them was other animals besides rabbits and I mean it was just it was it was one of those spontaneous group art things that happens and and I think that it well I don't know what effect it had on everybody but to me it, it, I, I was really encouraged that they had actually started to participate in it yeah they felt some sort of relief um, just feeling creative uh, takes away stress. It's very hard to be creative and, and to feel stressed at the same time, and it relieves pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think doing those practices uh, daily, or you know, and depending on the intensity of something, it needs to be more frequent. Um, you know, the metaphor for you know, I work with athletes. You know, whether you be a police officer in the field, right? Uh, you're, you may be seeing a lot of things and have to really be checking yourself regularly about how stressed or, you know, uh, agitated you are in, in dealing with individuals. And if you're a pitcher on a baseball mound and, and you have to throw 100 pitches a day, um, <laughs> there's multiple opportunities, right, to, to get upset uh, and to have to relieve and let go because uh, if it carries over for uh, two, three, four pitches, right? Mm -hmm. um, then they pull you out. Your performance can sink. That's right. So I think we need to think about not that, you know, mental health and empathy is meant to be seen on a performance scale, but on some level we are asking our nervous systems to go into tremendous stress. And just because the public system or the, the national system or disasters are demanding that of us doesn't mean that we don't have to treat ourselves with compassion and love. Um, which isn't something we're always great at, you know, in fact, when we're so good at putting attention onto global or external, we often do it, uh, you know, uh, at the extent of ourselves, you know, I know, uh, you know, Gabor Mate, who's a, a you know, big attachment and addiction psychologist out there is always talking about, uh, you know, the need to really tune in, mm -hmm. uh, to ourselves and watch how we're being in our personal relationships at the end of the day. And if you find yourself more irritated or, or, or drinking more than usual, anything that becomes habitually to disconnect or, mm -hmm. you know, your mood is an indicator of uh, what's going on inside your sleep. Certainly if your your sleep is interrupted, it's probably a sign that sponge is holding too much. Yeah, that's... And uh, needs a rabbit project or something. <laughs> that's right. That happened to me in Puerto Rico. I was down there after Hurricane Maria and I was at the headquarters, which I don't like doing. I like to be out helping the people who actually need my help. <laughs> instead of sitting in an office but I started to have nightmares every night and so I ended up going home early because I was I finally went to my supervisor I said I I can't do this because there's it's it's bubbling over into my sleep so I had to go home and do they do they make it uh okay for people to have uh yeah she's I mean she wasn't need to care for themselves she happy about it because you know you're supposed to commit for a certain amount of time but I said look I, you know this is this is not good and I just can't do it so, so they I went home they paid for me to go home so yeah. that's good <laughs> <laughs> they were they, they felt they felt abandoned and they had to <laughs> they deal did. With that on there. <laughs> Let me tell me real quick. You said that EDM, I'm sorry. Uh, EMDR, which is a you know eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Okay, I've actually which, I've uh, actually done some of that. Yeah. Oh, you have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because uh, and I always when I heard about it uh, on the licensing exam in psychology, like at the time, I think it was um, 
like one of the main like and originally it was like contested as you know is this just placebo because it involves you know eye movements mm-hmm. and uh, you know and, and um, so people are saying is it placebo is it that the person wants to give a better report to the mm-hmm. the, the, the practitioner about their symptoms going down well just um, just to be specific I I know when I took it they put a bar of light in front of me a bar with lights on it and they tracked back and forth from right to left and I was supposed to follow mm-hmm. the light and then when they they turned the light off I was supposed to explain what I was thinking about or feeling at that time is that how it operates very similarly I mean different people practice differently you can use eyes you can use uh, tapping which involves just uh, you know, tapping on your knees in a rhythmic mm-hmm. fashion, anything that stimulates to get the body to get out of the brain. So I think uh, the eye movement, the following the finger is uh, kind of something reorganizes the brain and the way you're processing a story. So you said like, we like to tell the story over and over again, but some of the criticism of people say, well, when I talk about it in therapy, then I'm upset mm-hmm. at the end. And that's part of what we, we have to understand that by, by bringing up the subject. So people will, avoid the subject matter of the trauma they've been through or the loss because they don't want that activation. Yeah. They feel they don't know what to do in this place when all the stuff comes up. Yeah. Cause it was um, scary when it so, happened and it's scary when it comes back up again. That's right. The same emotions you get imagery comes with it. A lot of things. Uh, and people don't know what to do. They didn't know what to do then. They, they wish, you know, it never happened. It makes, it brings up a lot of out of control feelings. And seemingly out of nowhere. So mm-hmm. after a session, a day or two later, and all of a sudden there's more anger and sadness. And so some people would rather go back to the way that they've been surviving. Which is and coping. shoving it down. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that's how you just, you know, keep keep functioning without without you know, the feeling is if I process this, it'll impede me. So but there are now agencies, uh, I know one EMDR consulting is the name of it is one of them that comes out to social agencies across the country and will train uh, clinicians. It used to be like very much like you have to become this strict psychoanalyst or strict EMDR therapist and mm-hmm. uh, so now there's more people that are teaching it. So you could use some of it maybe when you go out in the field, different brief interventions. So I think that's uh, helpful because it's and it helps you kind of, no matter how deep you go into something, uh, wrap it up at the end, give the person a sense of, I think the feeling is a, is a sense of control that you could, uh, both take the information and the story out and you can also put it away, uh, not to repress it, but just put it to where it needs to be for right now. And it's there if it needs more processing and that creates more of this, you know, has to like relationship settle down into your brain out of your <laughs> out of the limbic system yeah, yeah which is like right like hijacked right so let me ask you this i don't know if this is something that they actually do anymore after the murrow building was bombed in oklahoma city i went to um, a class on post-traumatic stress debriefing and what they s- told us to do was to lead the person through what was the first thing you saw and how did you feel and then to not one of the points that they made was to not let them go too deeply into it into their feelings and then try and you know close it at at the end of the session and and to me that sounded that didn't sound right i don't know if it is or not but 
it was like you're almost helping them but not quite and so <laughs> I think yeah it probably sounds like you know I'm not trained in uh, CISD specifically a critical incident stress debriefing but you know a lot of if it's part of like stress inoculation or uh, systematic desensitization it's the idea like instead of avoidance right that avoidance is this thing that leads to um, addiction and different kinds of uh, you know anxiety and other issues so if we could help someone think about something and become okay getting to stage two mm -hmm. and then coming back if we can help them get to stage four and, and, and come out it also I think trains people's nervous system that they have the capacity to process which which they I think they're fearful of I think they're fearful of going into something and and losing control so when you show them like you said that you can settle into your brain and body like okay I can go back there and I can talk about it mm -hmm. um, and you may not get to I, I had you know clients that have lost family members in, in car accidents and told me for two years we're not going to talk about it mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very strange thing, right? You're like, well, I, I think you're here. Well, no, I, to deal with I that. totally I know get that. that. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah, uh, and then and then they start to give you signals. They're ready to get closer, mm -hmm. and so it's like, you know, being able to gently suggest to people that they may have the capacity, and that you, you know, because if you just ignore going into it, then you're not probably helping them mm -hmm. either. So, you you know, you could be colluding with your clients. So uh, to protect them from feeling, feeling pain. So, um, helping people get closer to the experience, um, and becoming okay. And I, have seen this even, um, in work with children, um, that getting back to telling the story and, and developing a healthy narrative about the story. Um, even though there's pain and sadness, they can talk about it without it being this uh, thing that they always avoid of what happened to my mommy and nobody can talk to me about it yeah. well that and then the pain and children into trauma and disaster with children is something that i wanted us for talk to talk about but i think that to i think it's going to take more time than we have left to do that because, <laughs> okay. but what we've been talking about is very interesting i think and i really appreciate you taking the time to do this and i hope we can do it again absolutely i love it and i thank you and i appreciate you being out there doing that work on a uh, global level Same here. Uh, you too. being willing to go into those environments uh it's amazing and, and unfortunately we've had you know a number of these instances in our country uh lately and and um to have people on the front lines who are sensitive to you and you feel bare and without any security mm -hmm. um i'm sure i'm sure they're not always <laughs> uh able to express uh gratitude and appreciation but um and that's fine with me as long as I can help them that's fine so you have your own podcast is that right Richard listens I have my have my own podcast Richard listens or prior episodes uh, Richard listens on uh, sports where I'm uh, delving into some of the topics we, we talked about today because it's stress and high performance mm -hmm. so um, some of it involves sports some of it involves a variety of careers uh, and professionals across different uh, healing and health traditions. So, great helping become people uh, more informed, and also look at the uh, transformations that even people who we think are uh, doing really well, but but they're facing a lot of stress. Uh, learning how they manage that to get them closer to their true purpose. Mm -hmm. And how can they find you there? 
Yes. Uh, so Richard Listen's available on Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, all and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our stuff is up on Instagram. The podcast is on Spotify and previous episodes on iTunes. Look out, uh, Richard Listens, no spaces in between, L-I-S-T-E-N-S, my website, richardlistens.com, and uh, I'm seeing um, patients in my Beverly Hills office, and uh, if you're far away, uh, um, we can work something out. Somatic experience allows for uh, some some sessions, Skype and, and video and things like oh, that. So, um, yeah, if people need help and they've been in high-stress situations, uh, I'm here to help them uh, renegotiate it. Wonderful. That's that's great. And uh, keep a lookout in 2020. Hopefully uh, the book will be published and released. Great. What's your uh, book? Richard Listen's Guide for Dealing with High Stress. Yeah. Well, the title, we're still we're still hammering it out, uh, but, but <laughs> it involves, um, you know, crossing this threshold from um, dealing with stress and, and maybe being blocked from achieving our true, uh, our highest level uh, of performance and doing so in a way that's healthy and doing it in a way uh, where you feel like you've reached your maximum potential with all the resources available to you. Well, that's good. Um, so it would be title undecided by Richard Olberger, correct? <laughs> That's right. I don't want to say it. I thought I had the title, but you know, That's okay. once, once, once you get in there, uh, yes, well, you can, title you, undecided. You can come back and let us know when it's ready to go. I will. I'll send it out to you, but it's, it'll be, uh, I think Richard listens is a little easier for people to remember than, than Richard Olberger. <laughs> um, but, but if you follow us on Instagram, which is what I'd love for any of you listeners, um, who follow that medium, uh, we give updates, we show upcoming shows and, um, and we're always accepted, uh, interest in different guests and topics that we may be omitting. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, and just because they told me that I need to do this, I, I also have a book out. It's called Domestic Terror. It's by K.L. Fairweather. It's on, um, it's on Amazon. You can either get it through the the ebook or you can get a paperback and it's about what it is is about is about trauma in a small town and it's a lot of what I grew up with so there you go wow <laughs> well there you go and uh, so I'll be going to you about publishing and all that stuff yeah well yeah uh, maybe you have tips for me that, yeah and I actually if you want them I will send you some a couple of websites that I looked at if I can find them I'll send them to you I would love that. I would love that. And that's that's incredible that you're you're sharing your own experience with people and that you've published. Yeah, well it's you know, when you self publish you can say I'm published. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well thanks. Exactly. So I'm committing twenty twenty. Good. You're welcome. So yes, and if people want my free ebook, uh through Richardlistens dot com if they give their email, I have a free uh five tips to your next oh, that's wonderful. peak performance situation. Yeah. Well thanks again, Richard. I really appreciate your time and I really enjoyed what you had to say to us. It's great. Thank you so much for being here doing the show and making yourself available. If I can be a further resource or if you or any of your listeners um are interested in EMDR or somatic experience, happy to direct them to training uh, or materials just to stimulate their own learning and think about their own healing a little bit differently. Okay, well, amazing. We'll go ahead and put your information on our Facebook page and try to get it on the website. Sometimes I get to the website, sometimes I don't. But, <laughs> but thanks again, and I hope we can do this again sometime. 
Absolutely. Please let me know. We'll be airing. I'll look look forward to sharing with my listeners. I'll do it. I, I think we'll be airing February 15th. February 15th. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thanks, Richard. Sounds good. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Please feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. If you have a disaster tale to share, you can send it to us at kate at disastertales.com. Today's disaster tip involves the rapidly spreading coronavirus and other communicable diseases. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the best defense is to physically limit the spread of the disease. If you're feeling ill, stay home from work or school. When sneezing or coughing, block it with your arm or a tissue. Keep your hands away from your eyes, nose, and mouth, and most importantly, wash your hands. When you wash your hands, the CDC says, wet your hands with clean running water, warm or cold, turn off the tap, and apply soap. Lather your hands by rubbing them together with the soap. Scrub your hands for at least 20 seconds. Rinse your hands well under clean running water. This attention to hygiene can help keep you safe from diseases, including the new coronavirus.